Well, today we study Genesis 20 uh, in our continuing study of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 20. Now, if someone had never read the Bible, if they were completely unfamiliar with either Judaism or Christianity or maybe even Islam for that matter, and randomly opened to this particular chapter, Genesis chapter 20, and they read it, they would be somewhat justified in coming away with the impression that this fellow Abraham that's talked about here is a pretty rotten guy. And the other guy, Abimelech, while not perfect, was certainly compared to Abraham, at least in this chapter, a paragon of virtue. Now, that impression would be wrong, of course, because we know from previous revelation, and also we'll learn from subsequent revelation, that Abraham was not only a righteous man, but he was one of the greatest men of faith in all of human history. Now, although, you're certainly not going to pick that up from this chapter. You know, the Bible is, is meant to be read from cover to cover. It's, it's like uh, you would never start a Daniel Silva novel right in the middle. You would think that that would be silly because you, you would know the context. You would know what was going on. You would know how the characters had been developed or any other novel for that matter. But sometimes people just do that randomly with their Bible study and they just pick a particular chapter. Well, if you happen to just do this insane method of I'm just going to pick a chapter, open it up, that's going to be my scripture reading for today. You need a little context, otherwise you're going to come away thinking Abraham is not so great a guy at all. Now, you're not going to pick up the fact that he is a friend of God, that he is one of the greatest men of faith from the Old Testament at all from this chapter. Now, it's true, it is very true, that those for whom God has done much should live in a way that is consistent with what God has done for them. It's true that we who have been saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone should live in a way that's consistent with our position in Christ. That's true. And it's also true that the believer has the responsibility to live righteously and to perform good works over the course of their life after salvation. All three of those are true. But it's also sadly true that far too often, we do not, we do not live in a way that's consistent with what God has done for us. We do not live consistently with our position in Christ, and we do not live righteously and perform good works that, uh, that are frankly expected of us as a believer. Now, I want you to listen so very carefully to this. This is critical for today's lesson, but it's also critical because of the point in which we find ourselves in, in terms of theological development in the church at this particular point in time. Listen so carefully. There is a difference between positional righteousness, which is ours the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and experiential righteousness that comes when we walk in faithful obedience to him. There's positional righteousness that is ours at the moment we place our faith in Christ. We are positionally righteous. We are justified. We have been declared righteous at that particular moment. And we can never lose that. There's a difference between positional righteousness and experiential righteousness. There's a difference between our position in Christ and how we live out that position. Two different things. They're closely related, to be sure, but they're also distinct. Now, if you listen to some of the more popular preachers, uh, whether on radio or television today, you're likely to hear that there is no distinction between positional righteousness and experiential righteousness. That when one is in a right relationship to God, 
at least they're in right relationship to God positionally, then they will inevitably, key word, they will inevitably follow Jesus Christ and walk in fellowship with God. That one inevitably leads to the other. Some of them go so far as to say that if you're not living a life of faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, if you've not submitted every area of your life to his lordship, then the probability is you're not saved at all. These men are not intellectually challenged at all. They're not, they're not stupid. They're not foolish. They're frustrated. These, these great preachers are frustrated at the behavior of many in their congregations who claim that they've accepted Christ, but they're living in such a way that doesn't at all reflect God's righteousness in their life. It's frustration. If you listen to their stories, I'll mention him because he's, he's a national figure, John MacArthur. John MacArthur didn't used to hold this particular view that I just mentioned to you. He didn't hold it until after one day he looked out at his congregation, which was full of a, a lot of, I think in his terminology, Hollywood types out in Los Angeles. And they said they were believers, and they were, doing the, they were living like anything but. And it frustrated him badly, almost to the point there where he was going to quit. His board talked him out of quitting. He goes up into, I think, on Bear Mountain in his cabin, writes, if I understand the story right, writes the gospel according to Jesus and comes down with a different view. But it wasn't theologically based. It was experientially based. It was based on frustration. You hear people say things like this. They say they're a Christian couple, and yet they lived together before they were married. He says that he's a believer, but every third word that comes out of his mouth is a curse word. But he says he's a believer. She claims to have accepted Christ as her Savior, but did you see what she wore to church last week? I don't think they're believers at all. You know what? I've heard actually all three of those here. And I'm sad to say that. Because it reflects, it reflects a faulty understanding, and that's my fault. Because, because I'm supposed to be teaching this congregation better than that. But I've heard all three of those here. And I've heard this. I don't think they're believers at all. Yes, they say they've trusted Christ, but it looks to me like they're false professors. And I know what a professor is. <laughs> Somebody who teaches something at a university. Now, what a false professor is, I know what they mean, but I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to be. They say they've trusted Christ, but they really didn't trust Christ. Listen, I understand the frustration. I really do. We would all, every one of us, would like to see those that we love act more consistently with who they are in Christ. Frankly, I would like to see myself act more consistently with who I am in Christ. And see, that's the big problem with this view, my friends. It leads to great arrogance on the part of the one that's, that's proclaiming it. Because you're putting yourself, or we are, let's put an editorial we, we put ourselves up on this high mountaintop looking down over all of other, everybody else in Christendom and say, I'm righteous, they're not, I'm a believer, they must not be. We become fruit inspectors. But out of the same general passage that Paul read this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, remember our Lord himself said, you need to be very careful with this judging thing. It doesn't say you're not to make evaluations, but you need to be very, very careful with it. You need to take that log out of your own eye before you can even see to take the speck of dust out of someone else's. We need to be very, very careful with this. So, hey, I would like to see myself. This is a frustration for me. Paul experienced this frustration. That's the, the whole thing with Romans 7. 
He said, what's going on here? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, who's going to, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me from this body of corruption? So if the Apostle Paul had this problem, it's, really, it's going to be really difficult to say the Apostle Paul wasn't a believer. I know there's little ways they get around it, but this is the gist of that view. And I'm not trying to misrepresent it whatsoever. I don't need to. The theology that that, is, that that comes from is based on experience, not exegesis. It is not based on sound biblical exegesis. And, and theology that comes from experience apart from exegesis is not only wrong, it's also dangerous. It is dangerous. The scriptures teach that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works, apart from any works. But the scriptures also clearly assert that it's the believer's responsibility to walk in faithful obedience to our God after we're saved, and that there are consequences both to faithful obedient behavior and behavior that's not faithfully obedient. There are consequences to how we live. Good works are expected of the believer. But moral living does not get me saved, it does not keep me saved, and the lack of moral living doesn't mean that I'm not saved. Now please, I am not advocating immoral living. I'm not advocating bad behavior in any way. I'm not a fan of antinomianism. I'm not a fan of licentious behavior. I'm not a fan of couples living together before they're married. I'm not a fan of bad behavior, bad vocabulary. I'm not a fan of inappropriate dress. But I am a fan of rightly dividing the word of truth. And using the scriptures to determine our theology, not my experience to determine my theology. That's what I am a fan of. So I need to be careful. Just because some behavior I observe in myself, and this happens. I talked to a young man one time that had done something that was, it was pretty bad, frankly. This was something that could, might have even landed him in jail under, the, under certain circumstances. And he sat down with me and he said, I, I just, he said, Pastor, I just, I don't even know if I'm saved. And he was weeping. I don't even know if I'm saved. How could I do that and be saved? I said, listen, have you trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? He said, yes, I have. I said, you're saved. You're not on your way to hell. Now, I wasn't advocating what he did. It was bad. It was real bad. And, and God, I'm sure God tore his tail up for it. But it, it, it saddened me so to see this poor young man so distraught that all of his theology changed because of his experience. No, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. We don't want to import material and then front load the gospel with all these, these works. The Bible says specifically salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's don't make it harder than it is. You know, it's not like God's up in heaven trying to get us on a technicality. You know, there's nobody at the judgment seat of Christ that's going to come up, not, I'm sorry, the great white throne, that's going to stand there and say, you know, you know I did, uh, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, I did, you know, when I was a kid, I, I did trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life and and, uh, and Jesus says, well, you know, um, no, not actually. No, because you trusted me to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, but you never really recognized my, you know, at that point, you didn't, you didn't make me Lord of your life. You know, yeah, you cleaned up these areas, but you didn't clean up those, so no, I'm not letting you in. That's not Jesus Christ. 
If he says something, he's going to keep his word. And he said, salvation is by grace through faith. Again, now none of us want to see bad behavior in Christians. It's bad testimony. It causes us incredible pain. But we can't say that just because someone's behaving poorly, then therefore they're not a Christian. Now they may be or they may not be. And we're going to see something in this chapter that's going to set us on our ear. We're going to see a man who ought to be behaving righteously, behaving unrighteously. And one who you would think would be behaving unrighteously, the unrighteous one positionally, behaving righteous in terms of his experience. It's going to be backwards. Completely backwards from what you might think. This is important stuff. So we want to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, if you've ever wondered why so much of the Bible is devoted to a call to Christian living, then you already have the answer to a lot of this. You see... If, if it was inevitable that as a believer who is positionally righteous, and I will tell you this, I have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life. I have done that. Now, if you hang around me long enough, if you play golf with me, or heaven forbid, if you go to a football game with me, which I'm, I'm banning myself from from a long time, you may think, now, wait a minute, I'm not sure that pastor is even saved. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard, but... I'm not sure he's even saved, but I am, because I know in whom I have believed, and I'm confident that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted him until that day. Some of you are laughing harder than others because you know me better than others. But, but I know you too. And there's times with all of us we'd say, well, that's not righteous behavior, but let's don't, let's don't confuse righteous behavior with a position of righteousness and what our responsibility is. You see, because if it was all inevitable, I wouldn't have to be told in the Scripture to put aside all anger, malice, slander, wrath, and abusive speech from my mouth. If it was a sure thing, I wouldn't have to be commanded to do that. I wouldn't have to be encouraged to do it. I wouldn't have to be encouraged to flee fornication. If it was an automatic, I wouldn't have to be encouraged to do that or commanded. You see, things like breathing are automatic. I don't have to be commanded to breathe. My heart beating is something that's automatic. Putting aside slander and malice is a decision. That's something I have to consciously decide to do. Now, I have helped to do that through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to happen without his ministry. But he's not going to make me do it. Part of my nervous system makes me breathe. There's a part of my brain that makes me breathe. There's a part of my brain that makes my heart beat. Part of my nervous system. Those things are inevitable. The Holy Spirit is not going to make you obey. He's going to encourage you to obey. He's going to enable you to obey. He's going to do whatever he can to move you in a position where disobedience is uncomfortable. But he's not going to make you. He enables us. With all that in mind, we now come to a chapter that records a man of faith, a great man of faith, acting like anything but that. Now, this does not mean that he's lost his salvation since we last encountered him. It does not mean that he was never saved in the first place. You know, I had somebody tell me that David was never saved uh, until after the Bathsheba episode. Somebody who held that particular view. Because they've got to, you know, because if he was saved, he couldn't have done those things. They, They held that he wasn't saved when he fought Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? The battle is the Lord's. No. To say that, you'd have to say he wasn't saved when he wrote many of the Psalms. Let's don't be silly here. Yes, we all want good behavior. As a parent, I want good behavior from my kids. But I'm not going to hold it against them. Well, maybe you're not saved if you're doing this. 
No, have you trusted Jesus Christ? It's our responsibility to preach God's word to God's people for his glory. And we don't have any, any leeway whatsoever to change the message to fit us or to fit our particular audience. Yes, we need to minister to our culture, but we don't adapt, we don't adapt the truth to the culture. We may adapt a, a preaching style or a form of music or something else to the culture, but the message has got to be the message. We, we need to do this. What this means in this chapter is you've got a man, Abraham, who's not acting consistently with his faith. And also, this chapter will also shine a light, I believe, on an area of Abraham's life that needs correction. Maybe an area he needs to pray about a little bit, that the Holy Spirit would help him to change. Because this is the second time Abraham's going to make this same big mistake. And in fact, I hope that you've been with us for a while, because this is the same mistake that he made back in Genesis chapter 12. And this chapter is going to presuppose that you've already read that chapter. Because this account is going to be a little bit um, less detailed. As the narrative opens, we find Abraham on the move here. He, he was, Abraham was what we might call uh, a rancher of sorts. He had flocks and herds. And flocks and herds need water and they need grass. And so in that, in that period of time, it's not like Abraham owned a ranch. And he could send part of his flocks over here for a time and then water these other areas and and then a few years later, move them to another spot. When the, when the water dried up and when the, when the grass was all eaten, then Abraham had to move his flocks and herds somewhere else. And that's, where we, that's what we see him doing as this chapter opens. He's, he's on the move. He and his family are on the move. And this particular move sets the stage for the second abduction of Sarah by a pagan king. And once again, as he did in chapter 12, Abraham has put the promise in jeopardy. If Abimelech, this pagan king, has sexual intimacy with Sarah, it could be said later on that the child that Sarah will bear was not Abraham's at all, was not the, the child of the promise at all. It was Abimelech's child. So you see the, the dilemma that Abraham is, is placing himself in. Read along with me the first seven verses. Now, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's married. I love that phrase. <laughs> You're a dead man. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord... Will thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I've, not, I've done this. And then in verse 6, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, if you just had that, not, not even mention the rest of the chapter, you're going to think that Abimelech's the good guy and Abraham's the bad guy. Now, there, I want to tell you right now, there is no reason whatsoever to think that Abimelech was positionally righteousness. He was a pagan Canaanite king. But he's acting positionally righteous. It's It's backwards. The one, who should, the one who's positionally righteous in this, in this chapter is acting, acting in experiential unrighteousness. 
And the one who's in experiential unrighteousness is acting positionally righteous. So are we to say, since the guy's acting positionally righteously, he must be a believer then? No. No, he's not. As far as I know, Abimelech never became a believer. So we need to be very careful here. We find Abraham, once again, a man of God trying to save his own skin in this, in this chapter. In, in reality, as you can tell, what, what Abraham's done is tell a half-truth. Those of you that have read this chapter before, you already know that Abraham told a half-truth because Sarah was actually his sister. And Abraham was the brother of Sarah. They shared a, the same father. They had different mothers. So it's a half-truth. But he tells it in such a way as to be deceptive, so it turns out to be a lie. And, and most half-truths are, aren't they? Because we typically leave out that little bit of data that would get us in trouble, <laughs> that, would that would fill in the rest of the blanks, that, that little bit of data that may have made us look bad uh, and the other person look good. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He's, it's, it, it is his half-sister. Now, later in the Mosaic Law, this kind of union would be prohibited. At this particular time, apparently it wasn't, but, but it's a half-truth, it's a deceptive half-truth, and it's a lie. Now, Abimelech is most likely a title rather than a name. And we're going to meet another Abimelech a few chapters from now, chapter 26, when Isaac's going to turn around and do the same thing. So it's probably a title, not a proper name. I can't say that with certainty, but probably. And it probably means something like royal father or the king is my father, or there are, there are a couple other variations. But we're going to see Isaac meet another Abimelech, but it'll be another one. It won't be the same fellow. Now, the situation is much like what happened in Egypt in chapter 12, although there is one significant difference. The Egyptians were acting experientially in a pretty evil way. We find out from this passage that Abraham really had not, not much to fear from Abimelech or these particular people. They, they were more God-fearing than he was at the time, although they're not saved but at least in their leadership. So Abraham's pretty quick on the trigger to pull out this particular solution to a problem. You know, I said a minute ago that this is going to shine a light on an area where Abraham really needs some work. Uh, now, granted, it's been a couple of decades since he did it before, and we can, we can maybe say, well, once every couple of decades is not a real bad deal, <laughs> but this is a pretty bad sin. And you would think that 20, 25 years' worth of growth would have caused Abraham not to do the same thing, to have confidence in God, in the previous chapter, he just showed how he could rescue Lot from the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. I mean, it's, a, it's a, one of the understatements of all time to say that God is brilliant. But one of the things he does here, I think, is, is brilliant. I'm so appreciative of it. In the scriptures, we have certain great men and women of faith, great ones. And it seems as though some of the greatest of the men and women of faith, people like Moses and Elijah and Abraham and David, you know, they're, they're built up as incredible people of faith that we should emulate. And then in almost every case, it doesn't happen with Daniel, and Joseph is, a, is debatable. But in almost every other case, you, you see great failures also recorded. It's like God's balancing the scales. Yeah, they're great people, but listen, they're not perfect. There's only one perfect one. That's Jesus Christ. So Father Abraham was not the Messiah. And we see that here. David was not the Messiah. And we see that as well. The word of God came to Abimelech in a dream. After he takes Sarah, after this ruse, after this deception, which Sarah participates in, by the way. It's not just Abraham passing her off. Sarah participates in it as well. <laughs> 
I, I still would like to hear the conversation that occurred after this whole thing was over. You know, with Sarah, you know, we've got to stop this. <laughs> this, is, this hasn't worked out real well. But that's, so after, after the deception, the word of God came to Abimelech in a dream, and the message is pretty clear. You're a dead man. Now, some, sometimes boys on the playground like to say that. But when God says it, we might better pay attention. You're a dead man because of what, uh, what you've done. Now, I don't know about Abimelech so much, but if I was, and God doesn't communicate this anymore, but, but if I did have a dream like that, and it happened to be a particular behavior that God wanted changed, I'm going to start changing it right then. <laughs> I mean, Im- immediately. Because it's one thing when little Johnny says it on the playground, it's another thing of the God of the universe who created you and sustains your life moment by moment, who keeps your heart beating and, the, and your lungs breathing. It's one thing when he says it. It's another thing. God, God explained to Abimelech that he had taken a married woman. Now, to take a married woman was a capital offense in, in as, as far as I know, every ancient culture. Now, there, there may be one that I'm not familiar with, but as far as I know, in every ancient culture, adultery was a capital offense. It, it's going to be a capital crime later when the Mosaic Law is, is put in, into rioting. So, so you see, there, there does appear to be so there, do, there do appear to be certain things that are, are universally accepted as wrong. Taking an innocent life, stealing someone else's property, having sexual intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. These are, these are things that you didn't have to wait for the Bible to be written for people to understand that these were wrong. There's a universal moral law. There are other things that size up, but there are universal there are universal. Uh, there's a universal moral ethic, a transcendent moral ethic. And if there's, a, if there's a universal moral law, there must have been a universal moral law giver. C.S. Lewis's argument, the moral argument for the existence of God. It's my favorite, actually. It's one that you really can't get around. The reasons for Abimelech taking Sarah are more debated in this chapter than in the first episode back in chapter 12. There the king of Egypt takes Sarah because his servants say that she's an exceedingly beautiful woman. Now it is interesting that in, in this chapter, this, it doesn't say that specifically here. It's assumed perhaps. It doesn't say it. And, and so she certainly may well have been. But in the previous chapter, she laughs at herself and calls, her, calls herself worn out, old and worn out. Now, again, it's true. Like I told you in chapter 12, the beauty in the ancient world was gauged in an interesting way more by the eyes than anything else. So it could be that she had a veil on and, and these kind of things, but, but it also could be, and it's, some people have speculated, that at this point, Abraham gives Sarah over in, in some form of a, almost like a treaty or almost like an economic consideration. I'm going to give you my sister, and therefore you let me live in your land. It's possible Either way is bad. Either way, for, either for beauty or economic considerations, it's wrong. And God is going to hold Abimelech accountable, even though he was deceived. Now, the response of Abimelech shows that he, as opposed to Abraham, at the present time, is a God-fearing man. Abraham apparently wasn't. Adultery was a capital offense. He didn't see, and I guess he didn't realize there was going to be punishment for him as well but he's a god-fearing man he's not a believer but he's a god-fearing man i want you to notice the irony again this is this is the whole point 
Abraham, who is righteous positionally, is acting unrighteously. Abimelech, the pagan king, is seen fearing God in this passage. Now, he's not a picture of perfect righteousness here either. He does take someone into his harem. So he's got a multitude of wives. So, that's, so it's not like he's a, he really isn't a paragon of virtue. He just looks like one compared to Abraham at this point. Now, here's another irony, especially when we compare this to chapter 18. In chapter 18, God asks, or, or rather, Abraham asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Remember that in that dialogue? In this chapter, Abimelech asks the Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Now, I'm going to jump ahead just, just briefly. By this time, Abimelech, Abimelech and his whole family are apparently very sick, very ill. And Abimelech has been told, you're a dead man. But Abimelech understands that if he's going to kill the king, most likely there are other people in his nation that are going to die too for the one man's sin. Oftentimes a person in a position of leadership carries that responsibility. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it today. They carry a corporate responsibility. And so Abimelech is asking the same question of God that Abraham had asked before. A bit of irony there. Verse 6, God says, I know you're fooled. I know you were fooled. Now, he's still, he has still stricken him, stricken him with some sort of illness that has really gotten his attention. Because we're going to find out later that he was healed. But he was fooled. In verse 7, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet. Now, that's the first use of the word prophet in the Old Testament. Abraham's the first person that's called a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live... But if you do not restore her, you know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So God makes it clear. It's not just going to be one of you. It's going to be a bunch of you. This is the first use of the term prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament received direct revelation from God, and they spoke to others for God. Thus says the Lord. That was the mantra of the prophet. Here the role of the prophet includes that of an intercessor. Now last chapter, two chapters ago, Abraham is interceding as a righteous man on the, on the part of Lot. Here, in a, an incredible, ironic twist, Abraham's the one that's done something wrong. At least he certainly has the greater guilt. And God, in irony, is going to have Abraham pray for Abimelech to be rescued from the results of what Abraham brought to his household. Now, from, from Abraham's standpoint, that had to be a very humbling thing. Now, verses 8 through 11, So Abimelech rose early in the morning. Notice that he obeyed immediately. We'll see that with Abraham later. When the Abraham and Isaac episode, when he's going to sacrifice Isaac, he gets up right away. Same thing with Abimelech. He arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? Now, again, notice the irony here. Abraham is the man of God. I guarantee you, this is one thing I can guarantee you. When we all get to heaven, we're going to say one of these days, hey, there goes, there goes Abraham. Ever met him? Yeah, I met him, I met him a couple centuries ago. You want to meet him? He's a nice guy. <laughs> and we'll go, he is going to be well recognized in heaven. But now we have a pagan king chewing out 
righteous Abraham, positionally righteous Abraham, because of unrighteous behavior. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You, you, you have done things to me that you ought not to have done. This is a pagan king saying, Why did you do this to me? What did I ever do to you to, to bring this kind of behavior upon, upon me and all the rotten things that are happening to my family? What did I do? And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, well, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place. He had no justification to think that, by the way. Because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. It's almost like Sarah causing, God's the one who caused me to be barren. When God caused me, to go out, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you shall show to me. Everywhere I go, say of me, he's my brother. This is my custom. It's not just you that I fooled. Everywhere I go, I say that she's my sister. Great excuse, Abraham. Man of God, friend of God. Not behaving like one. Verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And and to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. He didn't say your husband. (laughs) This is a little dig from Abimelech. I've given your brother a thousand shekels of, a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, It is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men that you are cleared. In other words, I didn't touch you. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You notice here that Abraham prayed and God healed Abimelech, which means Abimelech must have already been ill by the time God spoke to him. God doesn't rebuke Abimelech per se, per se. But Abimelech sure rebukes Abraham. Uh, God does tell Abimelech, you're a dead man because of what you've done, but, but that's, not, that's not the same as what Abimelech does with Abraham. Abraham, Abimelech speaks of Abraham's great guilt, and he speaks of the actions that you've brought upon my house. And then he spoke, of, he spoke to Sarah of his own offense against her. It's Abimelech, to put it in, in terms we would appreciate today, Abimelech was, was a bit of a gentleman in that sense. He chews out the husband, but then he goes to the wife and, and basically says, I'm sorry about this misunderstanding. And he restores her. Now he recognizes that the plan to take her into his harem was wrong. So he makes amends to Abraham. Same thing that Pharaoh did. Abraham messes up and he gets richer. He's got a special relationship with the Almighty. He makes amends by giving Abraham livestock and slave. Now, these are things of wealth in the ancient world. And allowing him to live in his land. And giving Abraham, who, again, notice that he calls Abraham her brother. So he's still a little bit miffed about the deal. He gives him a thousand pieces of silver. Some translations may read a thousand shekels of silver. Now, that's a significant amount of money. A slave would be purchased for 20 
to 30 pieces of silver. You see that with uh, Judas, by, by the way. That's a, an Old Testament reference. A piece of land, the cave at Machpelah, I believe, was purchased for 400 pieces of silver. There, there we see plots of land purchased for a thousand. I mean, for 500 pieces of silver. So a thousand pieces of silver was a large amount. There's one account in ancient writings that says that the average wage for a regular laborer was one half of a shekel or one half of a piece of silver per day. So this would be 2,000 days. That's a couple, two or three years worth of income. So it's a fairly large. It's a fairly large amount. Now, these verses drive home the point that Abimelech is acting more righteously than Abraham. This isn't a good episode in Abraham's life. It's a sordid episode. He repeats a previous mistake. He shows fear not of God, but of the pagan Canaanites, and he endangers the promise. So this isn't a good day for Abraham. This is a man of faith who's not acting like a man of faith. God's prevention of an adulterous encounter was also a teaching moment for the original readers of this book, the Israelites. The Mosaic Law would reinforce the fact that adultery was wrong and it was destructive. And it called upon capital punishment for those who would practice such. To take another man's wife, even if done in ignorance, is a matter of life and death. God will not tolerate adultery. But this passage is about more than just that. Through prayer, restoration can occur. We see that in our own lives. We, we mess up, and sometimes we mess up big. And we never want to say that at church, and I'm not going to give you a forum to do it, because we'd probably all get out of fellowship if we listen to each other's failures. But we've all messed up. Maybe not in the last week or the last month, but if we went back to the last year... <laughs> I bet we've all had some pretty serious mess-up moments. But we're still here. And we're here because we have prayed to God to forgive us that sin. He has been very faithful and just, and he, he forgives us not only that sin, but all of our unrighteousness. When we turn away from it, God is gracious and kind. He wants us back into his family. He wants us into his fellowship. And it's a good thing. So, so the, the chapter is just not about how bad adultery is, although it's bad. But the, the chapter is also about restoration. Now with Lot, in chapter 19, with Abraham here, we've observed men who are positionally righteous, but acted in a very unrighteous way experientially. I, I wonder what my friends who proclaim the theology that I told you about in the beginning, I wonder what they say about Lot. There's nothing righteous about Lot that's ever really recorded in the Old Testament. It's not until you get to the New Testament, Second Peter, that you find out he was a righteous man. And once again, please, I, I am not, not now and not ever, I am not advocating antinomian or licentious behavior. You do it, you're going to get disciplined. Do it at your own risk. All I'm saying is that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by promising God that you're going to clean up every area of your life and then doing so. First place, you can't do that as an unbeliever. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in you. And as much as I would love to think it was automatic, it's not. So you have two men, Abraham and Lot, that are acting, that are positionally righteous, that are acting in an, in an unrighteous way experientially, and that is disappointing to all of us. But we can't go, on the basis of that, we can't go beyond what the Scriptures say and say, well, then they were therefore not believers at this point in time. 
You see, we make one decision in order to become positionally righteous. One, at a point in time. Sometimes people say, how much faith does it take to be saved? It takes just a little more than no faith at all. They're not degrees of faith that get us saved. We say yes to God. And that, that yes may be a very faint whisper. But God the Holy Spirit takes that faint whisper of faith and magnifies and turns up the volume and makes it effective for salvation. Because none of us would have enough faith it was just faith. It's the right object. Theologically, we call that efficacious grace. God takes our faith and makes it effective for salvation. One decision at one point in time. And I assume that everybody in this room has made it. You certainly, I recognize, I think, every face here today. I know you've heard the gospel before. God did love you so much. In spite of who you were, in spite of sin that he knew that you would perform in the future. He loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. That was what was most precious to him. He gave that so that we who are his enemies might have eternal fellowship with him by grace through faith. I assume we've all made that single decision. Now, after we're saved, we have thousands of them, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of decisions to make. It's like we don't come across crossroads every few years. We come across crossroads every day. All day long, am I going to do this or am I going to do that? This is what God wants me to do. This is what I want to do that I think would bring me more happiness. Because that's really why we do them. I mean, really, that's why we do it. Am I going to trust God to have my best interests in mind or am I going to force this thing? We have thousands of those decisions to make. Thousands upon thousands. And we call that experiential righteousness. And none of us is going to grow in a straight line. I wish we would. Our lines are going to be curvy. We're going to have good days and we're going to have bad days. Hopefully, on the whole, we're moving upward. But we cannot condemn either ourselves or, or others as not even being saved when these mistakes come into our lives. We cannot do that. For God is a God of grace. He doesn't encourage mistakes, sin. He doesn't encourage sinful behavior. But he's really quick to forgive you if you'll just come back to him. So we make thousands upon thousands, if not millions of decisions over the course of our life with regard to experiential righteousness. And yes, sometimes we fail. We all do. But that doesn't mean that all is lost. God is faithful, and he will restore the believer who acknowledges his sin and guilt. In the 6th century, there was a saint by the name of Gregory, No offense, but Calvin called him the last of the good popes. He said this, he prayed this, Almighty God, who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, we are appreciative of the passage that you've given us for today. May we learn from it. May we be careful with our theology to take it from the scriptures and not from our experience. And Father, we we don't want to act in an unrighteous way. We don't want to bring shame upon you or the name of Christianity in doing so. We don't want to be poor ambassadors for you. But I know it happens from time to time. Help us not to, to be discouraged and think we either weren't saved in the first place or lost our salvation. Help us to confess our sins, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Help us to be quick to walk back in fellowship with you so that we could restore, have our walk restored with you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work on us from the inside out to change us into who you want us to be. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.